NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV Radio broadcasts from, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from fresh water to salt water. Yama, and welcome to NITV Radio. Coming up in your program this Monday, October 9. Well, less than a week to go till the voice referendum, we explore the voting process, which has already been described as the biggest peacetime logistical event in Australia. Also leading up to the referendum, we hear from South Australian actress Natasha Wanganin and Charlene Campbell, an anti-based family and domestic violence activist, as they share their perspectives on the upcoming referendum. They reflected on the landmark event and how they'll be voting on NITV's The Point program. Your program also features Amy Mentoring Program founder and CEO Jack Manning Bancroft discussing his latest book, Hoodie Economics, an exploration of economic theory from a First Nations and diverse perspectives. All these stories and more coming to you on NITV Radio. We are broadcasting from Nam on the Kulin Nation this Monday afternoon. Bertrand Tungandame Ngaya. I am Bertrand Tungandame. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy directed outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. In this bulletin, yes, campaigners rally in Adelaide with less than a week to go before the referendum. Australia condemns the attack on Israel by Hamas. And mobile phone ban in New South Wales public high schools comes into effect. The Premier of South Australia has joined politicians and yes, campaigners in Adelaide at a rally in support for an Indigenous voice to Parliament less than a week out from uh, the referendum. Speaking alongside Indigenous Affairs Minister Linda Burney, Peter Malinoskas has told supporters the advisory body is both a humble proposition and a profound opportunity. I can tell you that there are countless advisory committees that provide advice to state government. Um, why shouldn't Aboriginal people have the same opportunity to be able to influence the federal parliament on decisions that affect their lives? It is, it is nothing short of a great tragedy that the very people who have been custodians of our land for over 65,000 years are also the same people who represent the most disadvantaged community in our society. Green Senator Sarah Hanson Young, who also spoke at the rally, says South Australia has a critical role to play. When the referendum campaign kicked off, we were told that our state was going to be the battleground. And here we are, six days out from polling day, from referendum day, and our state is the battleground. But we need to make sure love wins and triumphs over fear and hate. Yes is for love. Yes is for unity. Yes is for Australia. 
In the meantime, yes, campaigner Noel Pearson has described this weekend's referendum on an indigenous voice to parliament as a moral choice. It comes as two new polls suggest the no campaign remains ahead with almost half of voters opposed to the voice. A survey by the Sydney Morning Herald reports Tasmania is the only state with a majority of yes voters. Mr Pearson told the ABC a no vote would be a travesty which the nation could possibly never live down. Every minute and every hour of the next five days is dedicated to those who have not made up their minds and those who are thinking about the importance of this vote for Australia. My message to them this week is that this is a moral choice for the country. This is not just a question of constitutional law. The federal government says it is trying to confirm the welfare of Australians caught up in the attack by Islamist group Hamas on Israel, which has killed hundreds and injured thousands of people. Prime Minister Antonio Albanese says the Foreign Affairs Department is working around the clock on the welfare checks. Uh, we have a number, um, 1300555, that people can ring if they're concerned about friends or relatives uh, there who were visiting uh, the region. Australia has also updated its travel advice for the Palestinian enclave of Gaza to not travel and is also advising people in Israel and occupied Palestinian territories to exercise a high degree of caution. Foreign Affairs Minister Penny Wong has urged Australians who are in Israel to contact their families to assure to assure of their safety and reiterated Australia's condemnation of the attack. Australia unequivocally condemns the attack on Israel by Hamas. We unequivocally condemn the indiscriminate rocket fire, the targeting of civilians and the taking of hostages, a particularly distressing and egregious act by Hamas. The parents of Israelis kidnapped by Hamas held a press conference and pleaded for a meeting with the government to help find their children. While the authorities have not, read, have not released a specific number, Hamas officials say that dozens of Israelis are being held captive in undisclosed locations across the densely populated Gaza Strip. One father, who has two daughters who are still missing, described having to talk to them over the phone and comfort them during one of the Hamas attacks. It is unclear where his daughters are being held captive, but some of those missing were attending a music festival in southern Israel. Malki Shemtov, whose son is missing, says this is above politics. If any leaders in the world that maybe see this TV, maybe they see this uh, news and they hear all these terrible stories, please involve, please, please, it's a human. It's not about politics, it's not about all kinds of issues. It's not Arabic and Israelis and Jews. It's really about humanity. The Israeli ambassador to the United Nations is expected to attend a UN Security Council meeting later today. Talking to the media, the Israeli envoy Gilad Adan likened the current attack on Israel to the attack on New York 22 years ago. This is Israel's 9-11, and Israel will do everything to bring our sons and daughters back home. These images are horrifying. They are hard to see, 
and they are impossible to fully internalize. In the meantime, Hamas claims that it is not targeting civilians and expresses the view that settlers are distinct from civilians. Speaking on Al Jazeera television yesterday, Osam Hamdan, spokesman for Hamas, says that settlers do not qualify as civilians and must be viewed separately. You have to differentiate between the settlers and the civilians. The settlers, according to the international law, they are not civilians. They they attack the Palestinians. They, they, they in fact, shoot it against the Palestinians. So you have to differentiate between both issues, the civilians and the settlers. Back home, a mobile phone ban in New South Wales public high schools has come into effect from today, the first day of term four in the state. New South Wales public high schools will join government primary schools in enforcing a ban on mobile phones during school hours. Victoria, Tasmania, South Australia, the Northern Territory and Western Australia already have bans in place, while Queensland student, while in Queensland students will face one from next year. Acting Premier Pro Carr says the ban will improve educational outcomes for students. We have done this and as a key election commitment for the Labor opposition, now Labor government, to make sure that we can improve the focus and concentration of our young people in front of our wonderful teachers. This will also mean that at recess and lunch, when students can no longer be using phones either, that they might actually be running around, playing with each other, interacting with one another, talking to one another, actually socialising. A legal bid by former New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian to overturn findings she engaged in corruption will be heard as quickly as possible. Ms Berejiklian is challenging findings by the Independent Commission Against Corruption, ICAC. The state corruption watchdog found Ms Berejiklian engaged in serious corrupt conduct by breaching public trust and refusing to report a secret relationship with her then-lover, Liberal MP Daryl Maguire. During a brief hearing in the New South Wales Court of Appeal, Justice Julie Ward said she wanted to set down the two-day hearing as expeditiously as she could. Delays were at the centre of controversies surrounding ICAC and its findings after the corruption watchdog took more than 18 months to publish its final report following the last public hearing. And to sport, Australia has been confirmed to be out of the quarterfinals of the Rugby World Cup despite a Portuguese victory. Portugal beat Fiji in a shock win this morning, Australian time, beating the South Pacific side by 24 points to 23. Not enough to secure Australia's survival. The win was secured in the dying moments of the game. It's Portugal's first ever World Cup win. After some dismal results earlier in the competition, Australia's only hope of continuing through to the quarterfinals depended on Portugal beating Fiji by more than seven points. So while Portugal did win, Fiji still gets a point because they lost by less than seven points and that crucial point means Fiji go through and Australia goes home. And now having a look at the weather around the country, Broome, sunny 37, Perth, cloud clearing 26, Adelaide, sunny 23, Melbourne, partly cloudy 17, Hobart, Ashao 217, Albury, Wodonga, mostly sunny 21, Canberra, sunny 23, Wollongong, also sunny 23, Sydney, much the same 22, Newcastle, also sunny 26, Brisbane, partly cloudy 24, Townsville, partly cloudy 27, Cairns, Ashao 229, Alice Springs, sunny 29. Darwin, much the same, 
34 degrees and at West Cape Islands a sunny day and a top of 29 degrees and that is NITV Radio News. SBS is updating its radio schedule. From October 5, there will be more times to listen. With repeated programming on Wednesday, Friday and Saturday at 6pm on SBS 1. To find out more, visit sbs.com.au slash audio. I'm Bertrand Tungandame and you're listening to NITV Radio coming to you from now on the Kulin Nation this Monday afternoon. Coming up next, less than a week to go till the voice referendum. Well, in the program today, we explore the voting process described already as the biggest peacetime logistical event in Australia. Your program will also feature Amy Mentoring Program founder and CEO Jack Manning Bancroft discussing his latest book, Hoodie Economics, an exploration of economic theory from a First Nations and diverse perspectives. But first, a couple of stories from both sides of the referendum debate shared on NITV's flagship program, The Point. We'll hear from South Australian actress Natasha Wanganin and Charlene Campbell, an NT-based family and domestic violence activist, as they shared their perspectives on the upcoming referendum and how they'll be voting in two episodes of The Point's referendum road trips. Well, episode 13 of the referendum road trip of the Point program stopped in South Australia, a state considered to be a key battleground in the upcoming voice referendum. This episode featured South Australian Aboriginal actress and writer Natasha Wanganin, one of the guests from both sides of the conversation around the referendum. In the program, Natasha Wanganin shared her view on the voice, why she'll, why she'll be voting no, and how she takes the First Nations stories to a global audience through her acting and writing. Natasha, South Australia has a very politically engaged First Nations community. Why do you think that is? And it's been happening for generations, and regardless of what side of the debate you sit on, it's really, we've been standing on the shoulders of giants in this state for a long time, haven't we? Yeah, we have. We've got numerous warriors in our community who have fought very hard over generations like you said and have taught people like me who's nearly 40 to help take up that fight for them um they're getting very you know they're elderly now Mm. they don't want to see us doing this and our kids continuing to do this but they're very um inspirational and educational on how to teach our kids and young people how to stand up in the right way instead of being really radical about it. And there's nothing wrong with being radical. You've just got to pick and choose how you do that, I says. It's, it's, about, it's about seeking change. Do you think that we'd be in this position of having a referendum without their activism and advocacy? Probably not. Um, there's, there's two sides to that. There's people who are for change and people who are for sovereignty. So those two parties have been fighting very strongly back here. And without them both of them, both of those groups, without them, we probably wouldn't Mm. be having conversations around these subjects. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I think... Natasha, we're we're talking about voices, different aspects of voices, and 
different platforms of being activists or, or raising uh, you know, our points of view, both on the national and international stage. You're doing that on different platforms through movies. How yeah. important is that to bring that to international communities about the things that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people want to say and want to tell the world? Oh, it's extremely important. I think the history of our Indigenous films here in this country, um, we show a lot of trauma. We show mm. a lot of dark history um, of what we do, um, of what, what has been done to us. Uh, a lot of those films, you know, they reach overseas. Um, they eventually do, but they don't get pumped out like everything else. So um, being the oldest storytellers on the planet, I think we really utilise that as much as we can. But I'd like to see um, some more films about the way we're living now. I've made a point of trying to break out of the historical... Um, dispossession stories and, and traumatic stories because I want our people to see us strong, as strong warrior people that we are, especially in our own land. Um, I think that's really important to show us in, a, in that light, that strength, just as much as showing our history. I think one of the, one of the um, strongest images I, I know of you, Natasha, is at the rallies for, um, or the vigils for Cassius Turvey, yes. uh, standing at the front there. Uh, it was really fierce and oh. um, that's a very memorable image of you. Um, that's, so thank that's you for that. family for us, um, from my mum's side. But even using, you know, my, I was raised on Point Peace Mission, one of the oldest missions here in, Australia, in South Australia, in the country. And my dad told me, when you get older, get a respectful job, come back and help your people. Mm. And that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to use the platform as an actor to shed light on what we're dealing with right now. And I understand that my position on all this voice stuff, you know, I'm the only no person here, am I? Yeah. Yeah. I'm the only person sitting here representing sovereignty and the other side of the no campaign because I realise that that has been hijacked massively. And you spoke about the rally you had on Saturday. If, you know, I held a grassroots event here, 20 people came. Mm. And I've got, to, I've got to make this point. It doesn't matter how many people rock up at any protest. It's about being heard. So whether there was one there, 20 there or 2,000, it doesn't matter. The other point I want to make is the No campaign has so much funding. Grassroots haven't gotten $1. I've had to pull out my own money out of my own pocket, me and my daughter's money, to put on events for aunties here aunties that are 60 to 80 years old and they're not getting heard. So I'm sitting here for them today. You want the same outcomes, though, wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. We, we all want to close the gap. Yeah. Um, so what, what's your solution? My, my whole stance on this is as less than 3% of the population, I don't think it's right that 97, just over 97% of non-Indigenous Australians are going to vote on us. I think that's racist. I think it's, it's, not, it's not respectable considering everything we've gone through as a people in this country. So I'm really happy that you guys asked me to come here today because I've been getting a lot of heat in community, which we all know we're going to deal with that, good and bad, it happens. But I just wanted to sit here and have a respectful conversation with you guys because I think that's what we're lacking right now. Yeah, and I think that's very important. We, we can disagree or we can come at... The solution from different angles, but we've all got to come together. We've all got to sit at the mm-hmm. kitchen table because we've all got to get past the vote day. And it and, affects and all get of on. us. Absolutely. And if, if it and, was just and, Indigenous people voting, yeah. I would not have a problem yeah. because that's us voting on our mob and our futures and that's self-determination to me. Yeah, yeah. 
I'd trust the advisory board if it actually made changes. That's my other issue with what they're offering, that they just have to hear us. We have been screaming, yelling, crying, doing drastic things to get the government to listen. Why do we have to go to their table? Why can't they come and sit at ours? Why can't we have our sovereignty recognised as First Nations people and have them come and sit with us? Why do we got to go to the big buildings all the time? That's not self-governance. That's falling under somebody else's law when we've got our own laws here. Like, you, you're very strong with your culture, sis. You know, Uncle, you are too. We all are. Mm. But why can't they come to us and sit with us? Why do we have to keep going back to them? Natasha, if you were able to elect a member of your community to represent you, would that give you confidence that you'd be listened to? Uh, Not really. Uh, I know that my elders stand in their sovereignty pretty strong and they've been fighting that for the better part of most of their lives. So I don't think that they fought for an advisory panel without power I know that they fought for real change and they're still fighting as 60 and 80 year old elders out on the street now for that. So I would like the government to come and sit with us and sit at our table as sovereign people, as First Nations people and respect our law, acknowledge that. If they did that a long time ago, we probably wouldn't be sitting here like this right now, to be honest. And that was a South Australian actress and writer Natasha Wanganin sharing her views on Indigenous Voice. These reflections were aired in a group discussion in an episode of The Point Referendum Road Trip exploring all the views on Indigenous Voice in South, South Australia and rather across the country. That episode was aired on NITV and adapted for radio in this piece. If you want to see the full episode and hear, and hear alternative views expressed in that episode, you can find it on SBS On Demand. Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. And now we continue with diverse views on Voice to Parliament as discussed on recent episodes of NITV's flagship program, The Point. Here, an excerpt from The Point, episode 15, with uh, Charlene Campbell, a Walpuri, a Namantiri, Lorija and Aranta were family and domestic violence activists from Bantui in the Northern Territory. Here, Charlene shares her views on the situation in the NT from an expert vantage point. She also comments on the potential impact of an Indigenous voice to Parliament, answering questions from both the Point's audience, ho- the Point's audience and host John Paul Junkie and Narelda Jacobs. Charlene, has the misinformation made it out to Mbantua? It has, um, particularly in Mbantua, but... Um Specifically, me as a town camper, um, you know, we're all about educating. Two-way learning and deep listening goes right across Central Australia. Um, yeah, there's a bit of ups and downs, but I guess in the Central Australia, we're all about yes because it's about truth telling. Yeah, mm. well, you do, you do a lot of incredible work about preventing domestic, family, and sexual violence in Mbantua. What difference will the voice make to the work that you're doing? Well. First, lastly, is um, I like to say that when it comes to women's issues, a lot of, especially the Indigenous women that in the remote and rural, um, they don't have their voices heard. So I guess for us in the town camps, we're actually making that movement and having to advocate for those voices who aren't, you know, being heard. So 
we're actually kind of knocking on doors and banging on our trees, you know, listen to us because we're here, we're not going nowhere and we're going to keep doing what we're doing because at the end of the day, it's our job to do it as mothers. Mm. So these are women who have always had something to say but they've never been heard. Is that, is that what, what you're experiencing? That's what I'm experiencing at the moment but I'm quite 100% sure if this vote goes over the yes line, we're actually going to make a comeback and me particular in this space I'd love to educate people around two-way learning and deep listening because without having that we're not going to go nowhere. Mm. And what's the impact then that flows on to to men in the community? Well for that we do have men in the community that are actually active but most of our men um, still walking around on eggshells um, because during the intervention, we've had just, you know, just got rid of the intervention recently. But I feel like me personally, as a town camper, and I guess other town campers also, feel that we're still living under the intervention. Um, it is racial and it is scrimmated. Mm. Yeah. Shirlene, do First Nations people experience violence? because we are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders? Of course, 100%. We've always been putting up with violence and, you know, people say, like JP, for instance, you know, we've got to move on from being colonised, you know, but this, uh, sorry, through the colonisation, through massacres, but, you know, as a young generation myself, I carry that trauma because I come from a um, majority of family from the Condison massacre, so I understand where they're coming from. But for me personally, it's all about educating and to, um, deep listening. I've always said that because, you know, it's the only way we're, as a country, we can only move forward mm -hmm. if education is the key to way learning and deep listening and understanding where we're coming from as grassroots people. Well, what do you mean when you say two-way learning? Two-way learning is basically like learning our culture because we're already learning the Western nice colonizer, uh, sorry, the Western contents that we're living in today, you know, with all this vast majority of technology, but... We've got to go back, think about, you know, who we are as human beings because we've been here for more than 65,000 years and we've got to teach people who we are, what we're made of because we're not going nowhere. Mm -hmm. And I always say, me personally, as a young mum and a grandmother, education is the key. That's my priority in order to move forward. When it comes to teaching my young men and my young boys, they kind of have that understanding because they also need to have that ears and voices as well to walk alongside them. Yeah. Um, now, Warren Mundine has also been campaigning hard for the no vote. Last week, uh, he likened the Uluru Statement from the Heart to a symbolic declaration of war. What we describe as a symbolic declaration of war against modern Australia. The canvas is a glossy marketing brochure for the misappropriation of culture a misrepresentation of history and for a radical and divisive vision of Australia. All done in the name of Indigenous Australians, but working against us. Shirlene, hearing Warren Mundine talking about war, um, communities in the Northern Territory had the military role in to their communities. Um, is it fair for him to talk about the declaration of war, uh, about the Uluru Statement from the Heart? Not really, but yeah, during the intervention, I felt like we were going back to the process of coming in, having the war again. So that kind of a prime example there, going through the intervention, is that having that, yeah, as a visible in our faces and scared a lot of our people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Shirley, you live in uh, Hoppy's camp or Lura Andwa in Alice. Uh, we heard a lot there, um, the length of time the intervention lasted, that the stigma of living under the intervention, um, the calling for police officers. What, what is it like being a community member of Alice Springs? It's pretty daunting as an Aboriginal woman's perspective and a town camper, but, you know, as, like I said, me specifically coming from Alice Springs, we don't need no more resources like police officers and, um, you know, all that stuff. What we need is education, education on the ground, coming from top to bottom and bottom upwards, meeting halfway both ways, uh, deep listening, as I was saying, and um, two-way learning. Um, because the work that I do around family and domestic violence and sexual assault, we work in a space of early intervention and prevention, working with both our men and women. And let alone, you know, we've just already started up our young women's program, but I want to see young men starting up the young men's program too, because we also want to be voices for those. Again, we want to, you know, break that cycle of, yet the intervention, what it's caused, but then again, we want to break that cycle of our babies having babies, because, you know, again, there was no education to that. Um, white men just jumped on board and thought, what was best for our mob, um, specifically in Central Australia. But majority, you know, we've been doing this really our lives, um, over 65,000 years, respecting our cultures, both men and women, because even though they're different meaning and, you know, they have different, um, sorry, uh, separate, their own personal issues and important issues that they have to raise in those circles. But we respect them equally because, you know, respect comes a long way. You've got to respect yourself in order to get respect from others. And like I said, when we're talking about education, we've got to start talking about early intervention mm. and putting prevention into action. So yeah. more law, would that help? And you know, having someone else have a control over your life, which is what's been happening for a long I time. I want to see our law at the table. Um, also aligning with the Western law that we deal with today because at the moment we're under the white Western law and it's kind of majority painting like, you know, one of the young girls said on the TV that, you know, we walk around, we're all going to paint, paint with the one brush, mm. but at the end of the day, you know, we're doing all these hard works. Um, we're creating um, good outcomes. We're actually... We hold on to hope as Aboriginal people because, you know, we're not going nowhere. Hope yeah. is our biggest thing that we carry. Mm. Yeah. Look, we've run out of time, but before we go, I'll just get final thoughts from you, Shalene. I want people to vote yes, but I also want to see both government working on and supporting our place-based funding in the Northern Territory, specifically in the Central Australia, when it comes to family and domestic violence and sexual assault. And that was uh, Shalene Campbell, uh, domestic violence activist from Pantui in the Northern Territory sharing her points on uh, the voice referendum with uh, NITV's uh, The Points program. The Point delves into the latest Indigenous news and uh, features. This program airs on NITV on Tuesday nights at 7.30pm with all episodes also streamed on SBS On Demand. We must now go to a break. But when we come back, have a preview of the logistical challenges of the upcoming voice referendum. Stay tuned. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. 
Welcome back. Now, the biggest peacetime logistical event in Australia takes place this Saturday, October 14, with the Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum. People will be asked whether or not they support an alteration to the Constitution to recognise the First Peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. As the campaigning enters its final week, polling puts the No campaign in front of those who want the advisory body to be established. Greg Diet reports. The first referendum in Australia since 1999 takes place on Saturday when people will be asked to vote either yes or no on whether they support an alteration to the Constitution to recognise the First Peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. With the campaign now in its final days, those advocating a no vote have the most support, according to the pollsters. Pat Callanan from the Australian Electoral Commission says the lead-up to the referendum and what will take place on Saturday is a major undertaking. It is actually the biggest peacetime logistical event in Australia, so it's absolutely massive. Um, we're well, run, well versed at it because we do it every three years for a federal election and a referendum is pretty similar in how that works. Um, so as well as resourcing all the different polling places and voting booths across cities and regional areas, we also have a thing called remote voter services. So we're going out across the entire country and making sure people can cast a vote, including in remote communities. So that can be quite an effort sometimes. We use boats, light planes, helicopters. Vote counting starts as soon as the polls close, but Pat Callanan says there's a chance there might not be a result on Saturday night. That's because at least 1.2 million people have applied for a postal vote and the AEC has to wait 13 days for all those votes to arrive. So if the vote on Saturday is close, a final result could depend on those postal votes. It's really hard to predict what's going to happen there, but I would say to people, be prepared for there to potentially not be a result on the night. Um, the reason why a lot of postal votes can potentially make the result or the count take a little bit longer um, is the fact that we have to wait 13 days by the law um, for all postal votes to come in. So, of course, we're counting throughout that stage, but if it's a really close count, then it might not be clear, the indication result might not be, not, might not be clear until we actually get all those postal votes. To succeed, the referendum needs what's called a double majority. That's a majority of the population and a majority of the states voting yes. Professor Anne Toomey of the University of Sydney says even if the considerable double majority test for the referendum is passed, it could take years for the voice to become a reality. This might take a while. It could take a year, it could take longer. I would imagine that the Albanese government would want to get it done during this term of office just to make sure that it can complete the project. In the past, establishing other bodies like the High Court of Australia did take a number of years from um, after the point at which the Constitution required them to exist. Pat Callanan from the Australian Electoral Commission says millions of Australians have not voted in a referendum before. So the AEC has fielded lots of questions about the process. I think that in general, the fact that we haven't had a referendum in so long, there's just a lot of genuine confusion or questions about what actually is a referendum. So some of the things we've been seeing a lot this year is questions about whether a referendum result is binding. The result is yes. The answer is yes, it is. You'd have to have another referendum to change the result if you wanted on that one. Um, And the fact that it's compulsory as well. So you do need to attend and vote in one way or another. It's really no different to a federal election in that regard. 
And you can stay informed on the 2023 Indigenous Voiced Parliament referendum from across the SBS network, including First Nations perspectives through NITV. Visit the SBS Voice Referendum portal to access articles, videos and podcasts in over 60 languages or stream the latest news and analysis, docos and entertainment for free at the Voice Referendum Hub on SBS On Demand. Greg Diet, SBS News. NITV Radio, share our stories on Facebook. We must now step aside for another break, but stay with us. When we come back, we explore economic theory from a First Nations and diverse perspectives. SBS is updating its radio schedule. From October 5, there will be more times to listen. With repeated programming on Wednesday, Friday and Saturday at 6pm on SBS 1. To find out more, visit sbs.com.au slash audio. Welcome back. I'm Bertrand Tungandami and you're listening to NITV Radio. And now... The new book, Hoodie Economics by Jack Manning Bancroft, draws on alternative intelligence sources to look at the patterns of money, ownership and reduce reductive thinking that we have inherited and now and how we have the potential to create a new old foundation of equality, relational economies instead of transactional ones and networks that that are truly social. Well, leading up to the book launch, Hoodie Economics, earlier last month, I caught up with the author, founder and CEO of Amy Mentoring Charity, who is a graduate of the University of Sydney and Stanford University, a former New South Wales Young Australian of the Year, and an author of many books for children and adults. NITV Radio, share our stories on Facebook. Now, in his new book, Hoodie Economics, Jack Manning Bancroft, founder and CEO of Amy Mentorship Program builds a value system revolution that centers a relational economy, offering urgent and transformative solutions to embrace indigenous thinking and ideas from outside the margins and pushing the focus from capitalism to relationships, from the people in suits to the people in hoodies. And I'm glad to say Jack Manning Bancroft has just joined us on NITV Radio to explore his groundbreaking book. Jack, welcome to NITV Radio. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. In your new book, Hood Economics, you pull apart what people in suits might think of as economics, and I'll just quote a line from uh, the introduction. We have the potential to create a new, old foundation of equality, relational economies, instead of transactional ones and networks that are truly social. I believe this line actually sets the premise uh, of uh, the thinking uh, in un- underlined in uh, hoodie economics yeah i think you know for a very long time as a species we've been in quite healthy relation uh with the earth and you know our we've got the longest lab in in human history here on on this part of the rock um in australia and and i think we've you know the more you dig into our systems you kind of can see this very intelligent, positive feedback loops, strong systems designs, and most importantly, sort of understanding where human beings fit in the map of everything. And there's not going to be many arguments that stack up um, that can say that we're in healthy relation at the moment. You know, we're using 1.7 times the amount of, we need 1.7 Earths to cover what we're taking in terms of the resources at the moment. And 
we're just out of balance. And I think that part of it, which excites me and I suppose gives me hope every day to get up every day, is that I don't think as a species we're fundamentally evil. I definitely don't think we um, we we get out of bed and we're like, okay, I want to work out how to destroy Earth or you know consume twice the amount of Earth that's needed. But I think our networks are out of relation. And, and when we're looking at a bottle that we drink something from or a computer that we utilise or the shoes that we wear, um, all the things that we consume, and we're just told the story of some fancy person that's connected to that and we're not actually connected to the reality of that journey, then there's all these threads that start to unfurl in a way that um, that throw us out of relation. So I hope that we can find our way back into a healthier relational context where nature is centred and, um, and we can find that joy in relating to each other as a species and not just being divided into our, our small secular camps that reaffirm what we know and who we know. Yeah, and uh, this book is uh, informed by uh, your charity, Amy. And uh, this charity, the way you describe in the book how you actually build value without uh, necessarily bringing in uh, financial transactions, this was the foundation of your charity. And uh, you also use a hoodie as a symbol of uh, value creation. Uh, explain to us how the hoodie informs uh, your economic thinking. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, to sort of like zoom out, I think we get pretty intimidated by um, like words like economics. And, you know, I remember watching a big short about 10 years ago or 15 years ago and just going, whoa, okay, there's all these things in these financial systems which we're, we've become afraid of the vocabulary. And so I was looking at, you know, we've been doing AIM for 20 years now and about just as the pandemic happened, I'm like, and I've got to understand how economic systems work because I think I understand story. I think I understand some of the challenges around what we've inherited. But how does how do we actually, what is economics and how does it work? And the more I kind of looked into it, like it's just where we place our attention and, and what we value and a, and a coin or a, a point of exchange. Like it's been an ox in different economies at different stages. It's been um, a variety of different like elements that have been really valuable at that time pending what was seen as rare or mainly what we place the story around. And from that story, we place the value into an object which then provides a means for exchange. And so the hoodie for us, like we, when you start something, um, particularly something in like the non-profit space by the design of it, very rarely, and like unless you've inherited some wealth from someone or something, like very rarely you're starting with any money. So we just had to hustle and get people to give what they already had, which was their time and their knowledge and their opportunities. And the underpinning design of AIM, like the whole way through, has been about mentoring and knowledge exchange. And that's like invaluable if you hold on to your IP and you charge someone for a one-on-one $500 coaching session. But if you can create an environment where it's just normal for you to share your knowledge and realize that whoever's that coach that's charging for the coaching session has had knowledge passed on to them and that person's had knowledge passed on to them and if you track the threads all the way back there was a time before humans even existed and so nature birthed us and gave us the original knowledge and the original genetic code so um yeah the thinking is just was just like oh okay cool well this can actually stack up like we had this hoodie in the middle of this network and kids would unlock it and volunteers would unlock it and so we sort of dug more and more into 
what that looked like as a coin and as a currency. And then um, in the last two to three years, in parallel to writing this book, we've been designing a new country for the world um, called Imagination as a digital network state. And we needed an economy in there and, um, and something to trade as a digital token and something you could unlock. And the hoodie um, became the obvious playground because we already had, you know, 50,000 of these hoodies floating around that different people had connected in and someone can bump into them into someone else in a name hoodie and more often than not, it's someone from the other side of the tracks, like from the suits to the, the people that might usually be wearing hoodies and provides a thread that can connect people. So I think, yeah, coins and currencies can be anything and I think the latest last sort of 10 years around crypto and, and digital currencies has been attempting to showcase in a modern age what the internet can do um, when you put digital tokens to something and how you can try and subvert cash or, or gold as a, um, a go-to kind of pathway for exchange. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. And uh, this uh, brings us to the end of uh, today's program. I'm uh, Bertrand Tungendame thanking you for being with us this uh, Monday afternoon. NITV Radio will be back on uh, Wednesday and uh, Friday. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu. Yeah,